Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Part 9 The Coming Failure of the Twelve it is scarcely possible to be certain of the sequence of events during the hours of the Last Supper, but for us here it is of little importance. More is it to our purpose to realize that all the details should have happened at one time, that in the same hour in which one man, and he so chosen and so trusted, went out into the night to betray his master unto death, his master gave to all men his own body and blood to be their life that in the same hour in which Simon Peter vainly declared that he could not deny his Lord, and the rest that they would never desert him, that same Lord crowned all his former acts of love towards them and made them his first chosen priests. We look at the contrast and are amazed. We tell ourselves that no man could ever have invented such a story. And yet, while we look at it, and indignation almost makes us protest, we recognize again that it is only one more example, consistent with all the rest that we have learned, of the impossible yet true paradox of Jesus Christ. None but He would have made such a return. Because it was He, at once the contradiction is explained. Nay more, if we read in the life of another, we might have wondered whether it were true. Read in his life, we see in it what is but to be expected. It is Jesus Christ, therefore does he act in this way, with a love that not the greatest injury can break, nor can any closing of the doors prevent it from continuing to stand there and knock. We bow before him, knowing that he is faithful and true, what we see is only one more trait in keeping with all the rest we know about him. Let men, let even his own, do with him and to him what they will. Jesus on his side will never fail them. Thus we are compelled to reflect, as we turn from the scene we have just witnessed to that which next occupies the minds of the evangelists. It is as if they would say, So much did Jesus give, yet see the return that was made to him. So overflowing was his love, yet see how that love was tried. And nevertheless, even though so tried, it endured. We are given to see the mind of Jesus Christ, as it were, at work, knowing beforehand the desertion he is about to suffer from his own, yet refusing to blame the deserters, seeking excuse for them in the fulfillment of prophecy, since he can find it nowhere else, looking through the ordeal and beyond it to the resurrection day, when all would again be well. How often have we seen him using precisely this same method of appeal to himself, as if, in spite of every provocation, his love would insist on dictating mercy, on closing its eyes to the evil that was done, looking only to the hour, when at last he could forgive and forget, and restore all things in himself. And Jesus saith to them, You will all be scandalized in my regard this night, 
for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be dispersed. But after I shall be risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. He quoted the prophecy as it were in their defense, but he did not quote the whole. There were in it other words referring to himself, which could not but have been in his mind. And they shall say to him, What are these wounds in the midst of thy hands? And he shall say, With these I was wounded in the house of them that loved me. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that cleaveth to me, saith the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand to the little ones. The prophet had begun with this picture of ingratitude and failure and distress, but he had ended on another note. In spite of what men might do to the Savior that was to come, all would yet be well. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call in my name, and I will hear them. I will say, Thou art my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. If the prophet could so turn mourning into hope, the heart of Jesus Christ could do no less. In this hour of trial it would cling to any source of encouragement and relief. Therefore he added, for himself as much for them. But after I shall be risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. But to the eleven, even at this last hour, and in spite of many repetitions and warnings, all these were words that had no meaning. This night, that after all the triumphs of this week, he should so suddenly fail was not possible, that after all they had received at that table, they should abandon him, was not to be endured. He was speaking as he had often before spoken. He did not mean all he said. He wished only to stir the more in them their faith, their confidence, their love. Had he not done the same even when his own mother, when he had told her his hour was not yet come, and yet had rewarded her with his first miracle? Or with the ruler from Capernaum, whose faith he had questioned, yet healed his son at his request? or with the Syrophoenician woman near Tyre, whom he affected to disregard that he might reward her the more. Had he not called them men of little faith at a moment when they were showing trust in him, only because he would have from them faith and trust beyond limit? This time, then, at least, they would show that they could be trusted. Whatever he might say, they would respond by asserting their loyalty that nothing should shake. So argued Simon Peter once more with himself. Poor Simon Peter, not all the experience of the last three years had yet taught him. In the early days he had feared for himself when he had cried, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But the years of success and trust, and the hope and promise of great things to come, had made him overconfident. As before earlier that night, when he heard the warning concerning the traitor, his indignation was aroused. Then he had resented it that one of the twelve should be declared disloyal. Now he was told that not one, but all of them, and that this very night would take scandal because of their very lord and master and would desert him. He had tried them once before, 
and when others turned away, they had stood by him. Why should they fail him now? From Perea, he had led them into danger, and they had loyally followed, saying to one another, Let us go and die with him. What was there to make them falter now? Surely this could never be. They were tried veterans by this time and would stand firm. Of himself, at least, of Peter the Rock, this could never be said. For the moment, as was his wont, Peter had forgotten the rebuke he had received when he had ventured to remonstrate before. He was occupied with his own thoughts, his own devotedness. As their leader, he must set an example to the rest. Whatever others might do, he, at least, would never yield. Peter answering said to him, Although all shall be scandalized in thee, I will never be scandalized. At first, Jesus seemed to ignore Simon Peter's impetuosity. He loved Peter, therefore he could let his contradiction pass. In spite of all, he knew that Peter loved him, and therefore in love he could speak to him. He would show Peter how much more he was loved and cared for than Peter himself suspected. In this, once more, we cannot fail to catch the hope that looks beyond, and by so doing hides from itself the agony that is to come between. Until he is compelled, Jesus will not look at Peter the deserter. He will only consider the future leader of the flock. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And thou, being once converted, confirm thy brethren. So Jesus spoke to the man, who was very soon to deny him. There is not a word of blame, at most only pity. The fault is laid at another door. The evil deed is passed over. The future will see all put right, and with that he is content. But Simon Peter thought nothing of all this. He had been bold and had not been rebuked. His boldness encouraged him to venture yet farther. A few moments since, his master had said that soon he would go where they could not follow. Simon told himself that there should be no such place for him. Not only would he not desert, he would follow Jesus to the last. Once upon a time, it is true, he had said in a moment of fear, Depart from me, because I am a sinful man, O Lord. But he had shown a truer soul, when in the storm he had cried, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee upon the waters. And the Lord had answered, Come. Since then, at another testing moment, Jesus had asked them, Wilt thou also go away? And Peter had answered for them all, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. On that occasion, too, Jesus had been pleased with his devotion. Yet another time he had proclaimed his allegiance, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus had blessed him for it. Nay, he had given him a name which of itself seemed to imply that he would never fail. Surely, then, he could be yet more daring. The master had said that they could not follow him. Whither could he lead where he, Simon Peter, could not follow? 
Had he not long since, on the road through Perea, declared, We have left all and followed thee, and had not the Master promised them reward unmeasured in return? At least, then, he could dare to ask of Jesus an explanation. Simon Peter saith to him, Lord, whither goest thou? He received an answer in keeping with all he had yet been told, an answer that was no answer, yet in its mystery was more than sufficient. Jesus answered, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me hereafter. For this was indeed what Simon wished to know. So is it in all answers to prayer. Too often we know not what we ask for when we pray, and in consequence the Lord seems at times not to hear us. We forget that he reads the heart that speaks beneath the words that are spoken, better far than it reads itself. And his answer is to the heart, infallible and true, not always to the words it has uttered. But Peter was not to be so easily set aside. He had much yet to learn. He did not yet know his own limitations. Why should he not, this time as well as any other, be able to follow where Jesus led? So far, he had never failed. Jesus had once said as a test, Come after me and I will make you fishers of men. This could only be another such test, a trial of his courage. And at that moment, Peter thought he had courage for anything. He would show his Lord that now, as ever, he was constant. He would ask, he would offer himself, be the consequences what they might. Peter saith to him, Why cannot I follow thee? I will lay down my life for thee, Lord. I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Poor brave Peter. How easy is it to be brave when no danger is near us. How easy to be faithful when there is no temptation to desert, but only sweet attraction to draw us. But not in such a way may those be trained who are destined to guide others. For that end, Peter must be allowed his lesson, which only a heavy fall would teach him. In the answer which Jesus gave him, there is irony, there is resignation, there is even hope, there is no less affection. Indeed, love is the more expressed by the repetition of the name. Jesus answered and said to him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for me? Amen, amen, I say to thee, Peter, today, even this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter, before he had said, Simon, Simon, now it was Peter. Then his ordinary name. Now, when his fall is prophesied, he is called the Rock. Such is the affectionate irony of Jesus Christ. There is another thing to be noticed. That night Jesus had to deal with two offenders, Judas and Simon Peter. Judas that night would betray him but once. Peter would deny him thrice. Judas had made no special protest of allegiance. Peter had declared his loyalty again and again. Judas had been entrusted merely with the common purse. To Peter had been given the keys, the care of the universal church. And yet, after their fall, how differently they were treated. 
before a human court of justice, Peter might well have received the greater condemnation. In the eyes of Jesus, his offense was condoned. For those eyes see beneath the surface, they distinguish sin from sin, malice from mere weakness, heart from heart, where human justice is blindfold. As they looked at these two and beheld even their repentance, still they were not deceived. The one repented out of despair, the other, with all his weakness, had never ceased to love. And Jesus knew the value of them both. Indeed, what was it but love? Though it were love unbalanced that blinded Simon Peter all that night, both to himself and to his beloved's warning. He knew he loved, and in his love he thought he could brave all things. Greater love than this no man hath, that he lay down his life for his friends. So the master would say before the night was over, and Peter already had a like desire in his heart. Sitting in that supper room with the body and blood of Jesus given to them, how could he but respond? As for the warning, surely it was a warning only. The best way to meet it was to confirm himself and his companions in their allegiance. He would go on protesting. He would not think of weakness or surrender. We can see the tears in his eyes at the suggestion that his master could so suspect him after all they had gone through together. But he spoke the more vehemently, Although I should die together with thee, I will not deny thee. And in like manner said all the disciples, Jesus let them have their way. He had given them the warning, and from his side it was enough. He knew very well that after their manner they loved him, and after their manner they wished to show it. It was a different affection and a different manner from that which had been shown to him by the multitudes in Galilee. These men loved him, at least they wished to love him, even as he wished to be loved. And though that love would fail on trial, yet would it not die. It would rise again. It would rise again purified, taught by humiliation to know its own weakness. And then, when later the supreme trial came, it would not fail. They would not deny him. Then they would keep their promise. They would go to prison and to death for him, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus, sealing their witness to him with their blood. He would still be patient with them as he had always been before. Smoking flax he would not extinguish. It would yet burst into flame. He had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong. Therefore, because they were weak, until they learnt their weakness and where their true strength lay, it became their master and lord to bear with them at whatever cost to himself. He allowed them the last word and changed the subject. The vision of their desertion had brought up before him the whole scene as it would soon be enacted, and in that scene stood out another agony which it would be hard to bear. Judas, his friend, would betray him, and that was the first. His other friends would take scandal from him and would desert him. That was the second. Last, after all these months of labor and of miracles, men about him would be persuaded that he was an evildoer. That was the third. In the court of the temple he had once cried before his bitterest enemies, Which of you shall convince me of sin? And they had been compelled to acknowledge by their silence that there was no fault to be found in him. 
Nevertheless, on this night, others besides his enemies would be led to believe that he was a malefactor, that he was, as it were, a thief, that he was certainly a deceiver, and they would treat him as such. They would bind him and hound him away as a public danger. And with the wicked he was reckoned. The prophet had said it. It would come to pass. He would put nothing in the way to hinder it. Yet how everything he had taught and practiced belied that accusation. He looked back and recalled the instructions he had given to his own when he first sent them out into their ministry. Go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not possess gold nor silver, nor money in your purses, nor two coats, nor shoes, nor a staff, for the workman is worthy of his meat. This was not the language of a thief, of a malefactor, of a common criminal. Yet had he never deviated from it, with evidence such as this, nothing could be said or done against him. But he would allow his enemies something. For this occasion, if they wished to use it, he would give them a subject for complaint. He turned again to the group about him. And he said to them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, did you want anything? But they said, Nothing. Then he said unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise a scrip. And he that hath not, let him sell his coat and buy a sword. For I say to you, that this that is written must be fulfilled in me. And with the wicked he was reckoned, for the things concerning me have an end. This was indeed a new thing, utterly unlike anything they had heard before. Once, it is true, he had said that he had come not to spread peace but a sword, but what he had meant was known to everyone. Far more commonly and far more explicitly had he insisted on submission, on yielding to those who abused them and had declared them blessed if for the sake of his name they incurred that lot. But now he asked for a sword. Was he about to change his method? Had he at length come to understand that at night he was not safe in Jerusalem and must take means for his protection? They had felt it all the time. Of late, they had never come up with him to the holy city without some fear and anxiety. Indeed, some of them had taken precautions, not uncommon with men from Galilee, to have some weapon of defense about them in case of trouble. It was a short sword worn beneath the outer garment. None need ever know that they had it about them. Now, to their surprise, Jesus asked them to come out with him armed then it would be well to tell him how far they were prepared. They inquired among themselves. It was found that they had two swords among them. Peter possessed one. Peter, who was prepared to go with his master to prison and to death. There was one more among the rest. Verily, these conquerors of the world were armed to the teeth. The two put their hands upon their weapons. How ready they were to draw them and fight for their master and his kingdom in that supper room. They would let him know they were ready. Again, they would show him that if he so willed it, they would follow him to death. But they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. Jesus showed no enthusiasm. He was told what sufficed for his purpose.
and he said to them, It is enough. And that chapter was closed.